MSW Media. A big thanks to Athletic Greens for supporting the Daily Beans. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, September 22nd, 2022. Today, New York Attorney General Tish James drops the hammer on Donald, Don Jr., Ivanka, Eric, and the Trump Organization. Merrick Garland has filed charges against 47 defendants in a scheme to defraud the pandemic food program of nearly $250 million. Mike Lindell is suing Merrick Garland to get his phone back. Ohio candidate J.R. Majewski lies about his military service. And E. Jean Carroll plans to sue Donald using New York's new sexual assault law. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hi, everybody. Big show today. Dana will be back with me tomorrow. Today, I'm going to give you the headlines. I'm going to break down the news. We're going to do the hot notes. Then I'm going to drop a crossover episode I did with the Suburban Women Problem podcast from the Red Wine and Blue Network. It's truly an incredible discussion. We're going to talk about J6 and the documents and everything that's been going on in the news and, you know, with justice and women. It's just, it's a great discussion. I think you're going to love it and you're going to love today. It's a good day for justice and it's a good day for democracy. This just in, breaking news, breaking fucking news. The appeals court, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals has granted the Department of Justice request to stay parts of Judge Cannon's ruling. And it says per curiam, following the execution of a search warrant at the resident of Plaintiff Appelli, former President Donald Trump, plaintiff moved for the appointment of a special master to review the documents that the defendant appellant United States of America seized. The district court granted that motion in substantial part. Now, the United States moves for a partial stay of the district court's order as it relates to the roughly 100 documents bearing classification markings. We decide only the narrow question presented, whether the United States has established that it is entitled to a stay of the district court's order to the extent that one requires the government to submit for the special master's review the documents with classification markings, and two enjoins the United States from using that subset of documents in a criminal investigation. We conclude that it has. We stress the limited nature of our review. This matter comes to us on a motion for a partial stay pending appeal. We cannot and do not decide the merits of this case. We decide only the traditional equitable considerations, including whether the United States has shown a substantial likelihood of prevailing on the merits, the harm each party might suffer from a stay, and where the public interest lies. For the reasons we explained below, we grant the United States motion for a partial stay pending appeal. I will go over this in more detail tomorrow with Dana. This is fucking fantastic. This day could not get any better. Oh my gosh, let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, everybody, back in December of 2020, I tweeted, the arc of justice is long, but it bends toward Tish James. And today, proving I was right, the New York Attorney General filed a 222-page lawsuit against Donald Trump, Don Trump Jr., Eric Trump, Ivanka Trump, Alan Weisselberg, Jeffrey McConney, the Donald J. Trump Revocable Trust, 
the Trump Organization, Inc., Trump Organization, LLC, DJT Holdings, LLC, DJT Holdings Managing Member, Trump Endeavor 12, LLC, 401 North Wabash Venture, LLC, Trump Old Post Office, LLC, 40 Wall Street, LLC, and Seven Springs, LLC. If Seven Springs sounds familiar to you, I've been on that one for a while for their easement, their conservation easement fraud. Now, this is a play-by-play of over 200 incidents of false or misleading asset valuations committed by the defendants that will be virtually impossible to fend off. I'm sure the Trumps will try, and this is going to take a couple years. All of these take a couple years. That's not new. They didn't used to take 10 minutes, and now they take a couple of years, or they only take a couple of years for rich guys. These take a while. But this is the beginning of the end of the Trump organization. It's of note, Tish James says, some of Trump's tax records were seized by the FBI in the August 8th search of Mar-a-Lago and could be responsive to her subpoenas where Trump refused to comply. That would be criminal obstruction of justice. I would look for the feds to be investigating that soon. It's also of note that when Eric and pled the fifth nearly 500 times and Donald took it like 450 times or vice versa, something just inordinate amounts of pleading the fifth, that can be used against them in this civil suit. It's called negative inference. And they may have put their entire business on the line in an attempt to stay out of prison for this fraud. But there's no guarantees for that. Especially since there were referrals made. I'll talk about that in a minute. And there's also no guarantees in Fulton County, Georgia, or the Department of Justice's, you know, investigation into the attack on the Capitol or the fraudulent elector scheme. Interesting. Here's what the lawsuit is asking for. Canceling of any certificate filed under and by virtue of the provisions of the Section 130 in the General Business Law for corporate entities named as defendants and any other entity controlled by or beneficially owned by Donald Trump, which participated in or benefited from the foregoing fraudulent scheme. Number two, appointing an independent monitor to oversee compliance, financial reporting, valuations, and disclosures to lenders, insurers, and tax authorities at the Trump Organization for a period of no less than five years. Number three, replacing the current trustees of the Donald J. Trump Revocable Trust with new independent trustees and requiring similar independent governance in a newly formed trust should the revocable trust be revoked and replaced with another trust structure. Next up, requiring the Trump Organization to prepare on an annual basis for the next five years a gap-compliant audited statement of financial condition showing Trump's net worth to be distributed to all recipients of his prior statements of financial condition. That's a whopper. That's saying we want you to prepare annually for the next five years the truth to everyone you've lied to over the past decade. Next one, barring Mr. Trump, they want to bar Mr. Trump and the Trump Organization from entering into any New York State commercial real estate acquisitions for a period of five years. Holy shit. They want to bar Trump and the Trump Organization from applying for loans from any financial institution chartered by or registered with the New York Department of Financial Services for a period of five years. As you know, he's got about a billion dollars coming due next year. Next, permanently barring Mr. Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump, and Eric Trump from serving as an officer or director in any New York corporation or similar business entity registered and or licensed in New York State. They're already barred from running charities. Next one, permanently barring I think this is number eight, permanently barring Alan Weisselberg and Jeffrey McConney from serving in the financial control function of any New York corporation or similar business entity registered and or licensed in New York State. Next up, awarding 
disgorgement of all financial benefits obtained by each defendant from the fraudulent scheme, including all financial benefits from lenders, insurers through repeated and persistent fraudulent practices of an amount to be determined at trial, but estimated to be $250 million plus prejudgment interest and finally granting any additional relief the court deems appropriate. This is the equivalent of a corporate death sentence. It would strip Donald of the only qualification he ran on for any political office in the first place. The lenders are going to come knocking. And as I said, he already owes nearly a billion dollars. But most importantly, Tish James has said both state and federal crimes were committed and she has evidence and she has made official criminal referrals to the IRS criminal division and to the Southern District of New York. Now, the Southern District was already looking into some of this stuff when Barr was the attorney general. But that was shut down. The case was closed and the Southern District was brought to heel. If you read Jeffrey Berman's book, he talks about that. He's a former Southern District of New York U.S. attorney who was chased out, drummed out. This might be what makes it possible. This criminal referral might make it possible to reopen the investigation once closed by the corrupt Trump DOJ. Lots of folks wonder why they didn't do it prior to this referral or ever. Why didn't they just reopen the case? The answer is it's not so easy to just reopen a case closed by a previous attorney general without new evidence, because if you do that, it would certainly give Trump a good chance of claiming the investigation was purely political in nature because they reopened it without any new evidence. Now, we don't know the behind the scenes discussions that went on or have gone on or will go on, but I like the odds now, especially with that obstruction of justice, hiding tax documents in Mar-a-Lago, lying about having classified documents on top of that. And these crimes start back in 2011 and continue on into 2020. So the statute of limitations is not up for another five years. Well, from 2020, so 2025. Further, why hasn't the IRS or the DOJ gone after Trump since, you know, before he was president? That's money and resources. We had a long talk with Andy McCabe and Pete Strzok about this. After 9-11, white collar crime took a back, back, back seat to terrorism. There's just no money. They can't go after everyone. And it wasn't until he was in the spotlight as president that all this came to light. And what about Alvin Bragg, Manhattan District Attorney, who seemed to put the Trump org criminal investigation in New York on ice, causing two top prosecutors, Dunn and Palmerance, to resign? That one definitely in protest, we saw his letter. Well, if you read between the lines of this lawsuit, it's almost like Tish James is speaking directly to Alvin Bragg. And he wanted more evidence. Now he has it. He said in a statement today, his investigation into Trump and the organization is open and ongoing. I suggest he open it a little further, reconvene a grand jury, get to work. And Trump's woes aren't over today. Writer and columnist E. Jean Carroll, who has maintained Donald Trump sexually assaulted her once during the 90s in Bergdorf's, she's going to sue the former president under a New York law that just passed that lets sexual assault victims file suit years later. And that's what she said in court records filed Tuesday. In late May, New York Governor Kathy Hochul signed into law the Adult Survivors Act, which will give adult sexual assault survivors up to one year to file a lawsuit regardless of when the violation happened. In the court documents filed Tuesday in her ongoing defamation case against Trump, Carol's attorney, Robbie Kaplan, awesome woman, told a New York federal judge that her client intends to file a lawsuit against Trump as soon as that statute authorizes us to do so. Carol can sue under the Adult Survivors Act beginning November 24th. In the court documents filed Tuesday, Kaplan, who's Carol's attorney, alleges Trump has yet to cooperate in the discovery process. He remains unwilling to produce any evidence mandated by the court. 
Carroll, though, is ready to produce over 30,000 pages of evidence requested by Trump's defense. Quote, to date, discovery in the above-mentioned defamation case has been entirely one way. Kaplan has sought to consolidate Carroll's defamation suit with this new lawsuit that she is expected to file under the Adult Survivors Act. Alina Haba, who is not smart, has asked the judge to deny it, saying it would be extraordinarily prejudicial to Trump. <laughs> yeah. It's devastating to my case. Yeah, that's why. Stop breaking the law, asshole. And Merrick Garland. Do nothing Merrick Garland has charged 47 defendants Tuesday for allegedly defrauding a federal program that provided food for children during the pandemic, describing the scheme, totaling nearly $250 million, as the largest uncovered to date, targeting trillions in government aid. Federal prosecutors say the defendants, a network of individuals and organizations tied to Feeding Our Future, a nonprofit operating in Minnesota, in some cases obtained federal pandemic funds in the names of children who did not exist and then spent that money on luxury cars, houses, and other personal purchases. Fuck these people. To bilk the government, the Justice Department said the defendants relied on a complex web of shell companies and bribes. One participant allegedly created a list of fake children to whom it had supposedly served meals, populated with names generated from the website listofrandomnames.com. Others fabricated spreadsheets with invented ages or faked their invoices, all in pursuit of federal cash. Once they had the money in hand, some of the defendants bought houses in Minnesota, resort property and real estate in Kenya and Turkey, luxury cars, commercial property, jewelry, and much more. According to Andrew Luger, U.S. Attorney for the District of Minnesota, that's uh, what he said when he briefed reporters on the case on Tuesday. The extent of the scheme, which siphoned away money meant for hungry children, led the DOJ repeatedly to describe them as brazen and the theft as brazen. The acknowledgement underscored the immense challenge federal prosecutors faced to keep watch over the spending approved since the start of the pandemic, all while pursuing criminals who have treated the aid as a potential windfall. Quote, these indictments alleging the largest pandemic relief fraud scheme charged to date underscore the Department of Justice's sustained commitment to combating pandemic fraud and holding accountable those who perpetrate it. That's Attorney General Merrick Garland in a statement. And <laughs> the pillow man, Mike Lindell is suing Merrick Garland and the Justice Department, seeking the return of his cell phone, which FBI agents seized last week, because this went so well for John Eastman and Jeffrey Clark and Scott Perry and everyone else who's had their phone seized. Give me my phone back, Pete Navarro. No, we're sorry. In his suit, filed in federal court in Minnesota, Lindell said the agent stopped him at Hardy's and questioned him about his claims that the 2020 election was rigged. Lindell told the media last week, FBI agents, they asked him about Tina Peters a Mesa County, Colorado clerk. We now know, according to a search warrant, which we've seen for the phone, he's being investigated for conspiracy to defraud the United States, identity theft, and fucking with voting machines and voting equipment. Peters, Tina Peters, with whom Lindell has been linked, has been accused by state authorities of allowing an unauthorized person to break into the county's election system in order to search for evidence that would validate Trump's election's conspiracy claims. Lindell's suit against the Justice Department, which also lists Merrick Garland personally and Christopher Wray, alleges that Lindell's constitutional rights were violated by the seizure. After his phone was seized on September 13th, Lindell claimed in a podcast the seizure prevented him from carrying out his constitutional rights of running his business activities and accessing his money. I'm afraid, sir, those are not rights. Quote, not only do I run five businesses off it, I don't use a laptop. I don't use a computer. Everything was on that phone, he said. 
and you think that's an argument to get your phone, which was taken under a search warrant signed by a judge, to get it back. Best of luck, buddy. Now, finally, a little stolen valor for you. This pisses me off. Campaigning for a Northwestern Ohio congressional seat, Republican J.R. Majewski presented himself as an Air Force combat vet who deployed to Afghanistan after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, once describing tough conditions, including a lack of running water that forced him to go more than 40 days without a shower. Military documents, though, obtained by the Associated Press through a public records request, tell a different story. They indicate Majewski never deployed to Afghanistan. Instead, he completed a six-month stint helping to load planes at an airbase in Qatar, a longtime U.S. ally that's a very safe distance from the fighting. Majewski's account of his time in the military is just one aspect of his biography that is suspect. His post-military career has been defined by exaggerations, conspiracy theories, talk of violent action against the government, and occasional financial duress. Majewski's campaign declined to make him available for an interview, but in a lengthy statement issued to the Associated Press, he didn't address the questions about his claim of deploying to Afghanistan. A spokeswoman declined to provide additional comment when Associated Press followed up with additional questions like, why did you fucking lie? (laughs) It's actually illegal to lie about military service for gain, although I don't think this necessarily falls under the Stolen Valor Act that Obama signed in 2013. You actually have to say that you earned awards or, or medals for financial gain. I don't know that he necessarily said that. It's been an amazing day for justice, everyone. Tish James's lawsuit. I'm right now just looking at, at some of the what came in the appeal. For our part, we cannot discern why the plaintiff would have an individual interest in or need for any of the 100 documents with classification markings. Classified documents are marked to show they're classified, for instance, with their classification level. They are owned by, produced by, or for, or under the control of the government. And they include information the unauthorized disclosure of which could be reasonably expected to cause identifiable or describable damage to national security. For this reason, a person may have access to classified information only if, among other requirements, he has a need to know the information. This requirement pertains equally to former presidents unless the current administration, in its discretion, chooses to waive that requirement. And then another passage here. Plaintiff suggests he may have declassified these documents when he was president, but the record contains no evidence that any of these records were declassified. And before the special master, plaintiff resisted providing any evidence that he had declassified any of these documents. In a September 19th, 2022 letter from Jim Trusty to Special Master Raymond Deary, in any event, at least for these purposes, the declassification argument is a red herring because declassifying an official document would not change its content or render it personal. So even if we assume the plaintiff did declassify some or all the documents, That would not explain why he has a personal interest in them. Absolutely fucking brilliant. I am so excited about this. I'm so excited about Tish James. It's been a wonderful, wonderful day. Right after this break, I am going to have a conversation with the ladies of the Suburban Women Problem podcast on the Red Wine and Blue Network. You don't want to miss it. Everybody, cheers. Cheers to justice today. We'll be right back after this quick break. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everyone. As you know, I've been taking AG1 by Athletic Greens for a while because I wanted better gut health and a supplement that tastes delicious and that was convenient and not as expensive as 50 different supplements, some in the fridge, some in the cabinet, taking up all the room in the house. (laughs) And it was just getting to be like just it was incorrigible. 
But with one delicious scoop of AG1 by Athletic Greens, you get 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens like ashwagandha to help you start your day right. The special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, nervous system, aging, your skin, your hair, your immune system, energy, recovery, focus, everything. It supports everything. And it's just one delicious scoop in a cup of water every day. I share Athletic Greens with all my friends. And now is a good time for you to start because Athletic Greens is offering you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D, which is great going into flu season. And five free travel packs with your first purchase when you go to athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans. Athletic Greens uses the best of the best products based on the latest science with constant production and product iterations. That's amazing to me because usually a supplement will hit the market in 1986 and it'll stay the same. But science progresses and so does Athletic Greens. They've had 53 and counting upgrades and they donated over $1.2 million in meals to kids in 2020. So, you know, these are just cool people. And this product is awesome. And right now it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Just one scoop, like I said, in a cup of water every day, the easiest habit I've ever picked up. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, like I said, Athletic Greens is going to give you that free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans right now. Just do it. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans. It's the simplest thing you can do for yourself to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. You'll be glad you did. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Rachel Vindman. I'm Jasmine Clark. I'm Amanda Weinstein. And today we are joined by a very special guest, Dr. Allison Gill. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and I'm so proud to be part of this group and all the work that you are doing. Seriously, it's so important. It's so, so important. So thank you for having me. Well, thank you. And if you don't know who Allison is, she is a military veteran who hosted the incredibly popular podcast, Mueller She Wrote, and is now the co-host of the women-led news podcast, The Daily Beans, which I love. I've been a guest on both shows. And Allison is really my go-to source for so much of what is going on because she breaks it down. She knows it inside and out. And it's just a great listen, great newsletter, all the stuff. I'm a huge fan. Thank you so much. Same about this. I absolutely love your show. So all this incredible work that women are doing, it's just super empowering. And a great follow on Twitter. <laughs> my slap my slapbacks at Republicans are, are a, a ratio favorite of, uh, of, of many. We love those. Well, before we dive into our conversation with Allison, let's do our weekly midterm countdown. We are now just seven weeks out from the midterm elections. If you haven't gotten involved yet, it's not too late. You can sign up for the Great Troublemaker Turnout at redwine.blue. Amanda, you have been giving us our pregnancy sizes. So where are we? I did look it up. Seven weeks from birth would be your baby's the size of a pineapple. So we have like a little pineapple election. Pineapple makes me like squirm in my seat when I hear that comparison, but that's what it said. Pineapple. It does sound painful. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, it does. I was like, it's spiky. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we're close. Seven weeks is close. So Allison, we are so excited to have you joining us for a special crossover episode of the Suburban Women Problem today. We want to talk about your work in the January 6th committee and Trump's classified documents and all of that. But first, 
We really need to talk about what Lindsey Graham did last week. Oh, Lindsey Graham. Mm, mm. I don't, I, I, at first I was like, kept trying to like understand it all day. Right. I kept like, maybe it's this. No, maybe it's this. And I never really got, I don't know why he did what he did. What do you think, Allison? Well, I'm uh, frankly very excited that he did what he did because he just kind of put a huge nail in the coffin of the Republican Party in the midterms. We have so many people turning out. I mean, number one polling issue for people coming into the midterms is the threats to democracy. And one of the major threats to democracy is the fact that none of us here today are full citizens as long as Roe v. Wade has been overturned. And to, to be a part of that diaspora, to be a part of that group, really, really motivates uh, women of all ages, but especially young women. And it is the youth vote that is so very important. It's going to be so very important in these midterms. And and for him to just come out and say, yeah, we're going to do a national abortion ban, even though our reasoning for the whole overturning Roe v. Wade was states' rights. And where have I heard states' rights before? Oh, I hate that term. <laughs> like, literally, it makes me cringe every time I hear it. It's, uh, now, so, so it wasn't states' rights all along long. It was always something else. Odd, <laughs> odd that that's exactly what we pretty much said it was. Mm-hmm. And when when we talk about what you know, what we are and are not taught in school, I was taught in school that, for example, the Civil War was fought over states' rights. And yeah, then if somebody yeah. raised their hand and said, states' right to what? Uh, we can apply that same question here. And Lindsey Graham has doubled down and said, we want a national abortion ban. Forget what he said about state rights, states' rights. We don't want the states to have this particular right. We just want it where it fits our Christo-fascist nationalist sort of, and by the way, it's it's white nationalist, uh, if we're going to be serious, agenda. Uh, and, and so I'm frankly thrilled that Lindsey Graham uh, decided to come out and do this, especially while he's under criminal investigation. Right. In Georgia. In Georgia. (laughs) And I mean, this is the party of small government who is saying we want to take rights away from people and give them to government. Like, okay, again, it's like hypocrisy on top of hypocrisy. Well, not only that, we're at that point now where the men are just getting more and more ridiculous. And I say this as a person who loves men, but I'm sorry, they're getting ridiculous (laughs) right now. First, Let's be clear. This ban, this 15 week abortion ban that he's proposing will not affect the states that are already trying to ban abortion. It's not like the states where they're like, no, we want to ban abortion at six weeks and this one will move it up to 15. That's not what's going to happen. It's going to take the states that are not putting these restrictions on abortion and now place a restriction on those states. And that's very dangerous. And I mean, in the pregnancy timeline, it's before you have some very key information that a lot of people use to make decisions. Yeah. The 20 week scan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a really important point. Really important point. I know it's almost like he hasn't been through a 20 week scan to know that and to know that 15 weeks is probably not a good point, but I think he did it because He thinks most people, you know, this might be where a lot of people, right, think after 15 weeks, they're not personally okay with that. So I think he thinks of of any like section of people, like this might be the time frame that they're okay with. But we had an episode where we talked about that and where we talked about real women who have had to make that choice. So we have already been having these discussions. And and here's what he's not saying to folks who live in states that have six-week abortion bans or total abortion bans. There's something called the Supremacy Clause, which means that federal law supersedes any state law. Mm-hmm. And if he's trying to get 
pure pro-life or anti-choice people on board. Has he explained to them that if he passes his 15-week nationwide abortion ban, that people who live in states with total abortion bans would be able to sue under the Supremacy Clause to say, that means I can have an abortion up to 15 weeks. So even if he gets his way, he is alienating, you know, that 8% of people who like this idea who live in total abortion ban states. He's just not very smart. They don't have second level thinking or he is completely smart and leaving that tidbit out to just get people to vote based on their feelings and not facts. I like that he said, We're, we want to define who we are. I'm like, oh, you've done that yeah. loud and clear. And like a lot of Republicans assume that their constituents do not know the law. We talk about that a lot. I think, yeah, yeah. I mean, Jasmine's talked about that a lot. Um, they, they're they preying on people who, and they want to keep them ignorant um, because that's the way the whole, I don't know, house of cards, if you will, works mm-hmm. is by, um, you know, it's, it's predicated on a level of ignorance and for people maybe not to know what it what a function in government can give you and i think that's why it's so powerful what the biden administration has done and that we keep giving them room and space to do that because people can see a real difference between the trump right. administration and a functional administration that is doing things for the people. It's really important. Absolutely. You know, I did a piece in um, an op-ed in the Washington Post about how this um, national abortion ban or overturning Roe impacts active duty service members and, of course, veterans. Now we have the VA coming out and changing their rules, saying we are now willing to perform abortions in cases of rape and incest, which they didn't have on the table before. It was just life of the mother. Mm -hmm. So that opens up uh, abortion care for a lot of veterans as well. I mean, I think that's an important step. But the other thing is it still leaves like death panels for veterans. Like, so if I get pregnant and I need the service because it's, you know, my life is affected, it's not me deciding this, right? I'm not saying I'm a veteran. I need care. My life is, you know, in danger and like, "Mm, but how in danger is it? Right. Let's go ask the lawyers and we'll let the lawyers decide. You still have death panels. So it's better than nothing. But I mean, there's holes. And it depends on the VA. That's true. Because as we say, I worked for the Department of Veterans Affairs for 12 years. And as we say, if you've seen one VA, you've seen one VA. (laughs) Uh, So depending on where it's at, they might have different feelings about how to apply this law. Now, here in California, we don't have an abortion ban. I can go get an abortion every Tuesday at five if I feel like it. (laughs) That's what they think that you're doing, by the way. (laughs) That's what I think we're all doing. (laughs) But the thing the thing is, is that with regards to to veterans, the the thing that would have taken my life wouldn't have been the actual birth. It would have been the mental health issues that ensued by having to give birth to a rapist's baby. Mm -hmm. And I think there are some VAs, hopefully most VAs, and under particularly this administration's leadership, mental health of the mother might also count, not just physical, you know, ectopic pregnancies, et cetera, et cetera, tubal tubal, uh, pregnancies and things like that. So that has to be taken into consideration. And I didn't, I I unfortunately didn't hear any Congress people recently ask uh, the Undersecretary of Health for the Department of Veterans Affairs in a hearing whether or not mental health care of the mother would count, because that did, that would have threatened my life. Uh, speaking of, you know, suicidal ideation, PTSD, etc., to to be forced to give birth. And then, you know, we have the forced labor amendment. I mean, there's just so many things that can be argued. And this is a big issue for the military. Um, when we have 40% of female military officers that don't have access to an abortion, at the same time, we have issues with sexual assault in the military. Mm-hmm. Those two things aren't a good combo. Like, right. n- neither of them are great. But in combination, this is really not good for our military members. Yeah, and that was the big part of my 
op-ed in, in the Washington Post. I am a, a survivor of military sexual trauma and a pregnancy resulted and had and I was in Florida and had I not been able to walk right out of base on my couple hours of, you know, free time on the weekends, I would have had to request leave for travel. Uh, and in order to do that in the military, you have to tell them what you want to take your leave for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- what's cool is, is uh, maybe in response to my op-ed or just maybe because it's the right thing to do, at least the National Guard and the Air Force now have said all leave for all medical leave for travel for for care will be approved. The only problem is, is that a lot of, I think, active duty service members don't like to tell their command that they're getting mental health care or that they're traveling for care. Because if they do request that care, it's clearly, if they do request travel leave, it's clearly for an abortion because everything else can be handled at the military treatment facility. Mm -hmm. So they'll know, they'll know what it's about. And that still puts, that still will chill uh, a lot of it. You know what I mean? I mean, and this is still an issue in the military. I don't know your experience, but mine in the military was that any issue that was specific to women and medical issues was like, oh, wait, this is weird, right? You're not oh, like the others. God. Yeah, I can imagine. Dude, Amanda, they didn't even, I was one of the first women in the nuclear program. They didn't even have a GYN on base. When I asked for a pap smear to get my to get my um, birth control pills, they sent a dentist in to talk to me. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, and I, I was like, that's not gonna... The mouth is different. Um, we, uh, that's not where we have babies from. Oh, can you? So I ended up gosh. having to get sent to Jacksonville. You know, many hundreds of miles away to get to get my just not. I'm not even talking about abortion care. I'm just talking about pap smears. So it's yeah, it's very like I'm. I'm. I hope. I think they've probably come a long way since the 25 years ago that I was in, but. It's still, I imagine, very like, ooh. I think it's still a little, I mean, so even at the VA, so I was, so I have VA care. And even like when I was pregnant, like I walk in there and like, they don't deal with a lot of pregnant veterans, right? It's mostly me and a bunch of really, most of them older men, right? So I'm, you know, I'm pregnant and they're like, ooh, um, all right, you have a med. And there's like a form, I remember it said something like, what's your medical concern to alleviate? And I was like, pregnancy. I'm like, no, I don't want to alleviate. That's not what I'm hearing. Like, there's no other box. Like, that's the only box. Yeah. And I was like, this, do- this doesn't fit my situation. Like, it's just what we have to fill out. And I was like, okay. Yeah. But like, even then it was like, well, everything was outsourced. Like all the women things were outsourced at the VA. Like it's still, I'm the exception, not the rule. Yeah. hundred percent. Everything. Yeah. They don't have maternity care at uh, the department of veterans affairs. They don't have the facilities. They don't have the staff. They don't have the people. So they send you to your nearest maternity, you know, hospital with maternity and then, and then reimburse the bill. And that's a giant pain in the butt. Oh yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, for, to make sure that your bills are paid because you end up with these huge bills and then you're like, Hey VA, can you pay this bill that you said? And they're like, yeah, we'll get around to it in 2028. You know, yep. meanwhile, you're racking up like fees and late fees and stuff like that. It's, it's not made for women still. No, no. I think it took, I think, I had like a three-year-old by the time the VA paid off like this. And I was like, oh, she's three now. That's thank you. That's like regular, like for even regular insurance. So I can't even imagine with the VA just from stories that I've heard. But I would like to ask about your podcast, Allison. I'm new to podcasting. I think, are we going on a year? Or no, we're over a year. It's over a year. Year and a half. half. It's crazy because I never thought I would be a podcaster. And so (laughs) I'm curious, um, Allison, why did you decide to start uh, Mueller She Wrote? Well, I was watching uh, back in 2017, a couple months after Robert Mueller had been appointed special counsel, uh, MSNBC was rerunning a documentary about Watergate called All the President's Men Revisited. It was from like 2013 or something like that. And they were rerunning it, presumably because of the parallels between what, you know, what we thought 
uh, was Nixon and, and Trump. Now we know that uh, Donald Trump is much worse than than uh, Nixon was. Uh, but I was like, you know what? I bet in 20 or 30 years, they're going to be running documentaries on the Trump-Russia investigation. I want to be part of that. But I don't have a journalism degree. I don't have a news desk. Um, and so podcasting was the answer because I think the thing, one of the things I love the most about podcasting is it's accessible to everyone. Yeah, That's how it started. We recorded our first episode uh, when Manafort and Gates were indicted from my kitchen table, and uh, the rest is history. Wow. But some some kind of touchy history. Can you tell us about losing your job? Yeah. In April, uh, just after the Mueller report came out, I, I, we had been, uh, we were at that point a pretty famous podcast, uh, and we were going to put out a 20-part series going over what the Mueller report really said, which was counter to the narrative that Bill Barr and Donald Trump were trying to spin that there was no collusion mm-hmm. and I'm totally exonerated. <laughs> yes. And uh, right around that time, my brand new bosses, because um, my my previous supervisor and director of the interagency health affairs had uh, been removed, I guess, or retired. And uh, they flew out on your dime to San Diego to sit me down and tell me that my job was moving across the country and I could either be fired or move to D.C. Now, they knew I couldn't move to D.C. because my family is here uh, in in Southern California and Phoenix. So they knew I couldn't move. So I said, "Okay, I will sign the thing that says I'm not moving and you can fire me and I'm going to take all 12 weeks of leave that I've earned and go on leave for for the next three months. And uh, during that time, um, you know, I was still working on the podcast, recording the podcast, but I had a lawyer advising me how not to violate the Hatch Act or run afoul of any ethics violations, because most of us who work in the government have some ethics. And um, he said, you know what, just to be safe, don't do any recording or working on your podcast during the day, during what would normally be working hours. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay. So I did everything at night and on the weekends. And the day I got back, 12 weeks later, they still didn't fire me. They said they set up a phone call between me and my supervisor. And I thought it was going to be a phone call saying, welcome back. Here's what you missed for the last 12 weeks. But instead, I was greeted with a, this is a fact-finding investigation. You will answer all of our questions. And I asked for for my lawyer to be present. And they said, no, you don't get a lawyer. Are you refusing a direct order from your supervisor? I said, I said, no, I'll answer your questions. And so they took me on this weird clown law court show Perry Mason journey, <laughs> you know, where they asked me like, go to MullerSheWrote.com, click hosts, scroll down. Is that you? And I'm like, I've worked with you for 12 years. You know, <laughs> you know that that's me. Yeah. Thanks, Matlock. <laughs> Wait, so so what was so offensive? Like what? Okay, so what about the podcast was like super offensive to them? I was telling the truth about the oh, yeah, investigation. I get that. That's offensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was I was uh, I was a huge thorn. I didn't realize how huge of a thorn I was in the side of Bill Barr and Donald Trump and Rod Rosenstein trying to spin the hell out of this out of the out of the Mueller report release. Um, but apparently I was, and I didn't learn until much later through some FOIA requests that they were actually monitoring my social media at the highest levels, particularly my posts about whistleblower and accountability office at the, at the VA being totally abused by uh, the Trump administration, uh, being used to go after whistleblowers instead of protecting them. They basically used it. They were like, oh, who's who's a whistleblower this week? And then they would find those people and, and get rid of them oh, by doing the old Mick Mulvaney trick, moving their job across country to get mm-hmm. them to quit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, 
it was very interesting. But, you know, the the cool thing is, is remember earlier in the show, I was talking about how they don't think second steps and third steps. Mm-hmm. By firing me, they finally fired me on March, in March of 2020. They freed me up from the Hatch Act, which allowed me to fundraise for political campaigns. And uh, we were able to raise about half a million dollars Yay. for Biden and Harris and Ossoff and Warnock. So, sure, you fired me, but uh, I helped fire you. I love that. Oh, that's a good story. Now no more hat jack yeah. for me. <laughs> exactly. If they would have just kept me in my job working from home, I wouldn't have been able to raise all that money and fire them. Yes, you couldn't fundraise. I am the only Vinman that doesn't work or has never worked for the government. And I am the unleashed and untethered one. <laughs> and I, I only know my family's own experience. But I have no doubt after, because I know Allison and I know her story, I have no doubt that they are going after anyone to try to keep people in line um, because they do think they will come back to power. The Republicans will come back to power and they want to show what they've done and, you know, kind of offer this as an offering. Look, look like we, we didn't allow these people, you know, in our organization, et cetera, et cetera. I, I very much think that's happening. But, you know, we've had like, 118 um, scandals since the Mueller report. Can you just, you know, revisit that for a second? I was just about to say, it's like, it feels like a time warp. Like (laughs) so many things have happened. I'm like, which one is that? Which one is that? What do you think were the top, you know, takeaways from the Mueller report? That Russia interferes heavily in mm-hmm. our elections and that Bill Barr tried to cover that up. Yeah. Uh, it was found, now this wasn't big news, but it was found that his redactions of the Mueller report were inappropriate and overly broad. Most of them were to hide the depth and breadth of Russian interference in the mm-hmm. election. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump mm-hmm. didn't want to hear anything about it. He opposed anything about you know, Russia being a bad guy at all whatsoever. And so I think that is, you know, the main takeaway that and when we don't hold people accountable, they do things again, (sighs) the very next day in this particular case, the very next day, I was on stage and in Chicago on July 27th, when we a little birdie whispered in our ear named Adam Schiff, who said, we have a, a, a whistleblower problem. Uh, with regards to a phone call, we'll we'll get you more information soon. And we were waiting for impeachment proceedings to be, to begin based on on the Mueller investigation, or at least the the sissy the 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 Senate Committee on Intelligence findings. Um, also, mysteriously, Senator Burr was put under investigation for insider trading and removed as head of the Senate Intelligence Committee just uh, a couple of months before the Senate Intelligence Report came out on Trump Russia. So that put Marco Rubio in charge of spinning the findings, of course, which he did what Bill Barr did. Ugh. So it's all very um, corrupt. And, and and I think that we're, we're finding as time goes on, the corruption runs deeper than we know that the trial for Thomas Barrick starts this week yes. uh, for for espionage light mm-hmm. 951 mm-hmm. Um, for being a, a registered agent for the, the UAE and accepting three hundred and seventy four million dollars to to push their interests with the Trump administration that came out of the Mueller investigation. And we may still see some of that obstruction come through in potentially future indictments for obstruction in the in the uh, 1519 in the documents case, because the statute of limitations, the clock doesn't start ticking until you stop criming. <laughs> and he hasn't stopped obstructing justice since he stepped, set foot in the Oval Office. And so those charges could either be brought or 
that behavior in the Mueller report in volume two of obstruction of justice could be brought as a to show totality of the evidence of a pattern of behavior of obstruction of justice. So it could be used as evidence or uh, to, to bring charges. We'll see. But I'm I am. More sure than ever, even though, you know, Lucy's removed the football several times for me, (laughs) that there will be some criminal consequences. There will be some criminal consequences for this uh, doc for stealing classified documents and lying about it. Lying about it is the big charge. I mean, I also feel like I don't know if this is just my military strategic studies, but like Russia's not our friend. Like (laughs) like the we have the Cold War. We have lots of information. They are not our friend. I feel like when Republicans talk about like, oh, you know, it's Russia. It's just any other country. I'm like, no, it's not any other country. Right. They're not our friends. They don't want good things for us. Yeah, and now Trump at his rallies, he's able to get middle class, lower class, working class Americans to cheer for Russia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For Russia, for Putin and for the UAE and for Saudi Arabia, for the for Mohammed Bonesaw, we call him like that. They're cheering dictators. Victor yeah. Orban yeah. is like one of their big guys at CPAC. And, and they're like, yeah. And it's like, what world do we live in where you're cheering for Putin? This is who they are. This is what they will do in another administration. This is the, the, the it, you, you said it, accountability. Accountability has to happen. It's the only thing that's going to stop them and make them pause and think about what they're doing. Yeah. All right. Before we go to the break, though, we have to talk about your new podcast, The Daily Beans. What is it like doing that podcast? What do you guys talk about? And how is it like co-hosting with other amazing women? Oh, yeah. Dana Goldberg, my co-host, a comedian, a woman. She's raised over $35 million for a human rights campaign and, and organizations. And she's just a, a absolutely brilliant and funny and hilarious uh, a woman. And, and that's that's the idea, right? We, we needed to pivot away from the Mueller investigation because that was going to end. So that was a weekly. And now we do a daily morning news show called The Daily Beans. And it's it's the way that it came about was I would watch Maddo and I would see her wanting to say WTF, you know, like I would see her wanting to swear. Oh, I love this. <laughs> so I was like, you know what? We need news with swearing. And when can, where can we do that? With podcasting. And uh, we've just been able to get the most incredible guests, uh, and like Rachel, for example. It's truly been an incredible journey to be able to, to bring the news from a woman's perspective. I think I think women have a different view of justice than men do. Um, and from a humor perspective, and of course, with appropriate profanity, it's been it's been cathartic. I love that. Can I say it has been a hard transition from the military to academia, because apparently in academia, you don't swear that much or like nobody else does. But I still do because in the military, you kind of do. So I feel like is that some of the military background where you're like, let's bring that in? Yeah. And and working for the Department of Veterans Affairs, too, when you get up in the higher echelons at executive tables with like General Mattis, everyone's dropping <laughs> F-bombs. It's pretty great. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I'm on the. I've only been in the academia side. So I'm like, yeah, I do not have uh, that perspective. I feel like everyone would look at me crazy if I even said like hell. They'd be like, what? Oh, no. (laughs) All right. Well, I hate to put a pause on this conversation because it has been so amazing, but we do need to take a quick break. Don't worry. When we come back, we'll have more with Allison Gill of Miller She Wrote and The Daily Beans. (laughs) 
Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Allison Gill, and it was awesome to hear about Muller she wrote in the Daily Beans before we went to break. Now that we're back, let's talk about what in the heck is going on with Trump. There's been so much to talk about lately with abortion rights and what's happening in our schools that we've barely even talked about the January 6th hearings or the classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago. And it seems like every day some bizarre new thing is in the news. So I've actually heard people speculate that some of what Lindsey Graham did was to deflect a bunch of attention away from what was going on with Trump and Mar-a-Lago. Like we can, we can focus on more than one thing. I know. Like, I was like, I can make my kids lunches while also yelling at my husband that he didn't do something. <laughs> like, I can do both. Yeah. So let's talk about it. What is going on with all of this stuff? I think we should start with Mar-a-Lago because I feel like a lot of things, all a lot of the crazy is an extension of Trump being you know, investigated and finding these classified documents and all those things. And then everything just kind of got crazy after that. So I think we should start there. Also with Allison's military background too, this is nuts to me. The amount of training you have to go through to handle secret documents and top secret documents to like have this level of screwing this up with secret documents is just un heard of. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely is. And I, I I put out a thread about how, you know, I, I was part of my one of my ancillary duties was uh, I was in charge of the vault guarding the nuclear reactor manuals, um, which aren't uh, as classified as some of the documents that <laughs> that uh, we're hearing were kept at, at in, in a desk drawer at Mar-a-Lago with some hamburger wrappers. So the you know these these briefings by the Department of Justice and now the appeal to the Eleventh Circuit are super clear in their you know these the the law is clear you do not get to decide the courts do not get to decide as a matter of separation of powers nor does a special master get to decide what is classified and what is not if in fact Donald is actually saying he declassified these documents which these documents which by the way he's too chicken to to say because that could probably be a line and he could perjure himself to a court but even if he says that we still need access to these documents to assess them to see if his claim is true. This is the executive branch. The judicial branch doesn't get to step in and tell the executive branch how to do its job. It's called the Constitution. You should check it out. It's nice. Right. And one of the coolest things, there was an amicus brief filed uh, by a group of uh, former or and current Republicans today in the 11th Circuit. And they're like, why you are putting this person who is a citizen above any other citizen and giving him deferential treatment is the opposite of what you are purporting to say that you're doing. Speaking to Judge Eileen Cannon, you know, you're like, we need to give everybody equal, equitable jurisdiction under the law. But by giving him preferential treatment for no reason and without evidence, you're going against the very thing you're trying to do. And I think they have a good chance with the 11th Circuit, even though there's six Trump appointees there. They're very about the supreme executive and the executive having a bunch of power. It'll be interesting to uh, to see how, how they decide. And I think that their speed, the speed with which they're asking for a response is a good indication that they're really taking this seriously. It's been a little hard to follow for us non-lawyers, like all the details when it comes to the special master uh, ruling by uh, Judge Cannon and, you know, what's going on now. But I will say that it's not hard for me to understand that classified documents are not to just be thrown around all willy-nilly. 
And it is really not hard for me to understand that that ruling about, oh, special master, this was really more of a delay mm-hmm. and, and and not mm-hmm. anything else. Um, one of the things I can say as someone just kind of watching and trying to understand is that we have been a little afraid of the courts in the past uh, kind of bending to Trump's will. Um, and that's what I feel like uh, Judge Cannon did. However, during the whole like, let's overturn the election thing, it was actually those courts that despite being Trump appointees still said, no, we're not, we're not overturning elections. We're not. So in that space, I'm hoping that these Trump appointees will still do the right thing and still care more about their country than the person who appointed them to say, this is not okay. And we need to do the right thing. I am just crossing my fingers. I think there are some. There are. There are a few. Um, and, you know, I, I'm i not a lawyer, but I, I do speak lawyer, <laughs> uh, just from reading all this stuff for the last five years. So if you do follow me at Mueller, she wrote, I, I break these down in pretty straightforward layman's terms, these filings. Uh, so with some, again, appropriate profanity, <laughs> so yes. that folks can kind of understand a little bit better. <laughs> this is why I put out the Mueller, she wrote a podcast is because I wanted people to be on board and to pay attention to it. But that Mueller report is a snoozer. And it's long. <laughs> um, but you know, you can't put the Mueller report on a bumper sticker. So that's mm-hmm. kind of what I try to do. They call me the docket whisperer. You know, when, when we're talking about this stuff, guys, this goes back to what we always talk about our relational organizing, because in these news silos, they're not getting the truth. And if you have a little bit of truth, or, okay, well, you have a lot of truth, but if you have a little truth that you can share and you can like, like, well, I actually heard, or I read this and then give it to them, give them Allison's, you know, information, let them maybe go and see it for themselves, but you can discuss it. You don't have to be afraid of it because she breaks it down in a way that you don't have to be afraid of. And I think that's really important. So I was wondering, Allison, if you could break down, what do you think is happening with January 6th? Yes. When it's coming back in late September, which timing wise is very good, right? Very yeah, that's good. when like the shows come back. Like we have Handmaid's Tale back out now. We have the good fight that um, is out Survivor, now. And then, that's a Venom family favorite starts this week. <laughs> and along with all this January 6th committee, I was like, good airing Democrats. I like it. All right. So what's going to happen? Yeah, I think they're going to focus a lot on the funding uh, of January 6th. Right now, we know that the the money, yes, Mm -hmm. follow that money. We know that the Department of Justice has recently opened a criminal investigation into Trump's PAC, Save America PAC. We know as back as last September, a year ago, they opened an investigation into Sidney Powell's uh, PAC and how she's funding not just the insurrection, but lawyers uh, for witnesses to January 6th and the insurrection, including the Oath Keepers. Um, So... There's a, a lot of follow the money, I think, is what they're going to be looking at. But they also just started getting another trove of documents. Um, and the, you know, Mark Meadows's uh, text messages that he gave to the committee are now in the hands of the Department of Justice because he was subpoenaed. And it seems like the Justice Department, you know, they were working in radio silence for a while and we felt like they were behind. And now it looks like they're right on pace with the January 6th committee. And I just want to make sure everybody understands the DOJ cannot finish its investigation until the January 6th committee finishes their investigation. Uh, And the reason is, is because in the old uh, Michael Sussman, John Durham thing, 
there was one witness. It was Peter Baker at the FBI. They were. This is B- Bill Barr trying to go after uh, Michael Sussman, who worked for the Clinton campaign, failed miserably because the one witness told Congress one thing, told the inspector general another thing, and told the Department of Justice grand jury another thing. So that, and he didn't lie. He just had inconsistent testimony. So the Department of Justice must have all of the testimony given in the January 6th committee not because they don't want to do the work, but because they have to compare it to their own testimony and records comp- in, in records, so that there isn't a compromised impeachable witness. Because they might have this star witness like Mark Meadows. If he told the January 6th committee one thing and told the Department of Justice another, then Donald Trump could impeach that witness on the stand and they could lose their case. Mm-hmm. So we, mm-hmm. it, it, I'm excited that we're going to have these public-facing hearings so close to the election because the Department of Justice doesn't make overt investigative steps within 60 days of an election. So we're, it's going to be in the news. It's going to stay in the news. But I also just want everybody to be prepared that that does push back. That does delay a Department of Justice investigation a little bit. It doesn't stop it, obviously. Uh, but to just to be prepared for that eventuality. And I also want people people to temper their expectations about when Trump does get arrested. There's not going to be a takedown tackle and shackle pay-per-view style event where he's perp walked and in his underwear. He would probably like that, actually. So I'm glad he won't get it. He would probably complain that it didn't happen. Right? Yeah, I think that's what that's what more likely would happen. It's like, they didn't even arrest me correctly. <laughs> and if he is, and he, if, if he is tried and convicted and convicted and that's sustained uh, upon appeal, I don't know that he'll actually ever see the inside of a jail cell because of the complications with regards to Secret Service. He, he may be just forced to be on house arrest until he, till for the rest of his life with a couple of ankle, some ankle jewelry, you know. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it too. I'm more excited about Tish James in New York completely suing and gutting the entire Trump organization and leaving him penniless. That's what I'm looking forward to. And then the Fonnie Willis's incredible work down in Fulton County. Um, She's going to bring some indictments as well. Go Georgia! And those can't be pardoned. (laughs) Yes, go Fonnie. She is doing awesome. Those can't be pardoned if she indicts like Lindsey Graham, let's say, that that no, there can be no pardon, even if a Republican wins the White mm-hmm. House in 2024. Mm-hmm. There can be no pardon for that. Yes, I love that. Well, speaking of the awesome work that Fani is doing in Georgia and Tish is doing up in New York, uh, I think this is a perfect time to transition uh, to our Toast to Joy. So, Allison, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. You know, this has been an amazing conversation. I I wish we could just keep going and going and going and going. Um, There's so much that we could talk about when it comes to these subjects. Yes. Uh, But let's transition to our Toast to Joy. And uh, I'm actually going to start. So my Toast to Joy this week is to taking 10 teenagers to Six Flags Over Georgia and surviving. (laughs) Um, It was uh, definitely an experience. So we went on a Sunday and there were like no lines, like none that I've never, well, so I didn't get to ride because I was the the chaperone. I was like the like adult that was getting in the way of all the fun. (laughs) So I was the coat hanger. I carried lots of bags, but uh, it was so nice just seeing my daughter have fun with her friends. My last toast to joy was to her birthday. And so this was her birthday party. And uh, yeah, I survived it. I would do it again. Although maybe next time I'd be like, all right, everyone leave your bags at home. 
And because uh, I'm not doing that again, because they, they were heavy. They were like, I don't know what those kids were carrying, <laughs> but there were some heavy purses. My daughter does that. She carries like a lately. I mean, she's only 11, but she started carrying a purse. I'm like, what is in your purse? And why do you need it when you go out and play in the neighborhood? <laughs> I'm very confused by that. Yeah. I need to do, maybe I need to do a bag oh, check. Oh, that's so cute. Well, are you, uh, Rachel, are you always pulling things out of your purse that people need? Are you that person? Because Oh, I am that person because I do. carry like a, always a big bag. She probably just wants to be just like you. Oh, yeah. You know, there. There is, there is that possibility. She's pulling out band-aids for neighborhood kids. And- yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, it's probably true. Yes. All right. Uh, so Amanda, what is your toast to joy this week? Uh, so my toaster, so I was actually in Vienna last week, which was super fun. I got to go, um, by myself and everyone's like, Oh my gosh, it was such a long plane ride. And I'm like, yeah, but nine hours by yourself is equivalent to like two hours with three kids. Like it's kind of the same thing. Right. But it was so fun. I'd never been to Vienna. So I got to, I had some time to walk around the city and it was really fun. And like having public transportation around, I was like, wow, this is so cool. And I actually got to go and I had a meeting at the United Nations Industrial Development Organization. And it was super fun. And it was really nice to talk with just people from around the world who kind of are studying and researching similar things. And it was a super good experience. Loved it. Highly recommend. Allison, what is your toast to joy? Oh, my toast to joy is this week I was invited by Joseph Robinette Biden to go to the White House to celebrate the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act from my hand and helping getting it passed. Woo! And one of my favorite moments was I got to talk to Elizabeth Warren, Love her. who was my first choice, right, for for um, president. And while, you know, while I say Joe Biden was like number five or number six, he really has met the moment. He's blown my mind. He's been perfect. Well, maybe not perfect, but, you know, you, you catch my drift. But when I when I saw Elizabeth Warren, I just I went up and I thanked her for the provision she slid into the American Rescue Plan a couple of years ago, which said that any student debt forgiveness up to fifty thousand dollars would not be subject to federal income tax. And I said, thank you so much for that little bit of because then if when Joe when Joe Biden forgave ten and twenty thousand dollars student debt, everybody would be complaining that they would be taxed on that loan forgiveness. And she made that so it didn't happen very quietly, very simply. And she she looked at me and she said she gave me two snaps up and then she licked her finger and put it on her rear end and went. (laughs) (laughs) And then she goes. She goes, it's all about planning. And I was like, oh, my God, you're my hero. So that was just one of the coolest um, things to be able to sit and watch the president speak, watch Nancy Pelosi, Senator Schumer speak. The president of International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Boston 103, introduced the president. And then to just be able to hang out with all those incredible people that day was truly, truly joyful. So that's my toast for joy. That is awesome. So that reminds me of, I got to meet Kirsten Gillibrand one time and I got to talk to her and I thanked her specifically for her work on the Military Justice Improvement Act work that she has done, which I know it's not passed. However, like it is very meaningful to me that she is working on this. And and it was really interesting because this was like, uh, this was, uh, oh, this is when Hillary Clinton was running. So there's like this room full of like big donors. I think I was the only woman in this room. And she, I just said real quick, I just want to thank you for this. It means a lot to me. And she stopped and she came and talked to me for like 10 minutes. And all these dudes are like, who the hell does she think she is? But it was really meaningful. Like that. I said something very specific. She Mm -hmm. did. She loved talking about it. And 
So Kirsten Gillibrand recently was trying to get the cadet act passed. I don't know if you know about this one. Yeah. yeah. So they actually slipped it into the defense. I think it's a defense authorization bill. Something with NDAA. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I was like, I know they slipped it into something. So now for all of the cadets that are at all of the academies, it is basically okay if you're a parent, because right now what they do is they actually force people to get abortions or leave, which is crazy. And I think a lot of people don't realize like, you know, when you don't have the right to make those decisions, the government can make you get an abortion just as well as they can, you know, prevent you from one. No, it was a, it was a really big thing that she did. That was um, huge. I, I, yeah. Yeah. It really is. And it hasn't been talked about much, but Mm-mm. I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of women. We've been talking about a lot of women out there who are working and they've worked for a long time before they got a lot of praise and they still do a lot of stuff and no one is recognizing it or acknowledging it. We were working with uh, Kirsten Jill, Senator Gillibrand on on the Military Adjustment Improvement mm-hmm. Act going back to a decade ago when the film I was in, The Invisible War, came out. That's when it... <gasps> I love that documentary. That was in that one. I'll have to go back and watch it again. Oh my God, it's so good. So I saw a screening in Columbus and... The most meaningful thing to me was when, and I'm already forgetting who it was, but basically someone who was like higher up, like heard the situation and he did fix like something. It's still, there's issues, right? We know this. However, <laughs> like even just like hearing it and fixing it was really meaningful that someone listened and did something mm-hmm. because a lot of it just gets swept under the rug and you get so sick of seeing everything swept under the rug and ignored. And that part like brought me to tears. It was very meaningful. For me, it was hearing several other people say the exact same things were said to them when they tried to report. Mm. It was when I saw that film, when I saw it at the premiere, and that was when I realized that I wasn't alone. And when you know that you're not alone, no one can gaslight you anymore Mm -hmm. and tell you that you're crazy for what you think. And it was just super cathartic. Very powerful. That's No one can gaslight you. I love that. Well, I guess I will share my toast to joy um, this week is actually, I guess I just kind of said it. It's it's just to the amazing women that I've gotten to know through this whole journey. Allison was one of the first people who reached out to me for me, not for Alex. And I was able to share my story, our story with her and maybe kind of realize that I could maybe tell my story that um, it was something that might resonate with some people. And now I think as we've gone much further down this road of the importance of accountability and how vital it is so that we don't end up back in that same place where worse things happen. And I think we don't even know all the bad things that have happened. And, and in all this, I feel so encouraged by so many amazing women who are always doing great things. And, you know, here, Allison has a, 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 whole, a totally different career, you know, than what she studied, what she devoted her life to, and other people who do it in addition to the things that they do, and maybe, you know, even to the detriment of their real careers, that they they refuse to be silent, they speak out, and they tell the truth. Women are understanding. I mean, they're meeting the moment of the Dobbs decision, but I think even before this, this moment was already growing, this groundswell of like, look, I don't think you guys know what you're doing. So uh, let's come in here and clean this up and fix it. I think that's a good point, Rachel. And I also think like what you've done and what Allison done, like women were just waiting a lot, even before the Dobbs stuff, but no one was talking to them and no one was saying- This is for you. Yeah, too. no, I completely agree. It's the decade of accountability with start with the Me Too movement, whistleblowers, mm-hmm. uh, all these women yeah. podcasting, mm-hmm. speaking mm-hmm. truth to power. 
uh, it's it's growing, and I th- and I think that that you know when I gave the whistleblower speech at, at Whistleblower Day, I was like, this isn't just about us and and what happened to us. This is about mm-hmm. going forward and leading environments that allow and celebrate whistleblowers yes. and accountability mm-hmm. and transparency. And I think that that's this. I think that's a huge movement that's gonna unintended consequence of trying to drive fascism mm-hmm. into the into, into this country. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Sorry, we're not gonna take it. You know, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today for this very fun crossover episode. This was such a joy. And if you're enjoying the show, please share it with someone you know. Maybe you know someone who's a fan of Muller, She Wrote, or The Daily Beans, but hasn't heard of the suburban woman problem. Or likewise, if you listen to our podcast, but you've never checked out Allison's work, you absolutely should now that you know how wonderful she is and how she can really break down these super complicated things for you. So subscribe to The Daily Beans. Thank you again for listening. We will see you again on another episode of The Suburban Women Problem. Hey, everyone. It's AG. Thank you again for listening on this incredible, amazing day. Thanks to The Suburban Women Problem podcast. Thanks to the Red Wine and Blue Network. Dana and I will be back with the beans tomorrow to talk about this amazing last minute 11th Circuit granting of the stay from the Department of Justice. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you. I've been AG and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>